I am very excited in particular for the Indigenous Health Panel. Um, I think I stole Tolu's answer. <laughs> just now, amongst the applause and general hubbub, the sound of people talking, of people laughing. Well, that's just a little snippet of all the energy, engagement and optimism delegates brought to the fourth Rhodes Healthcare Forum, a packed full weekend spent exploring the challenges of ensuring universal health coverage, how to get healthcare systems from just surviving to thriving. In this first episode of a four-part series, we'll be tackling four big questions that go right to the heart of universal health coverage. What are the challenges of providing universal health coverage today? What does successful universal health coverage look like? How do we achieve universal health coverage? And why do we want to achieve universal health coverage in the first place? Introduction, what is universal health coverage? So a quick visit to the World Health Organization website tells me that, and I quote, universal health coverage is defined as ensuring that people have access to needed health services, including prevention, promotion, treatment, rehabilitation, and palliation, of sufficient quality to be effective, while also ensuring that the use of these services does not expose the user to financial hardship. In 2015, the member states of the United Nations agreed that one of their sustainable development goals should be to strive for universal health coverage by 2030. So the idea behind universal health coverage is ambitious, and necessarily so. And it was rather exciting to think that this weekend I was amongst the people who might make it happen. I spoke to some of the current Rhodes Scholars to see what their hopes were for the forum. My name's Ian Sander. I'm from Prairies and uh, the 2018 Scholar. Um, this weekend I'm really excited for the Indigenous Health Panel in particular because we have a Canadian speaker who's come in and working in Indigenous Health and actually is of Indigenous background and because this group in Canada is particularly marginalized and has poorer health outcomes compared to a lot of the other groups, I think it will be nice to get a bit of a perspective that's relevant to my country as well as a global perspective as well here too from the other speakers on that panel. Uh, my name is Alex, I'm a scholar from Canada, I'm also a medical doctor by training, currently looking at um, engineering here and so I'm very excited about the TED Talks on Innovation on Sunday, um, which is essentially how can we use technology and innovation to help improve health and improve patient outcomes. And so we have three very different but very interesting speakers, one looking at tech for mental health, one for global health and one for um, health inequity and kind of um, using Chinese biobank data. So really excited to hear them talk and each of them is kind of a world leader in their space so it should be a lot of fun. Question one. What are the challenges of providing universal health coverage today? To answer this question, 
I thought a good place to start would be Sir John Bell's welcome address, the speech that kicked off the entire forum. Sir John Bell is the Regis Professor of Medicine at the University of Oxford and also a trustee of the Rhodes Trust. I think we're in a world now where one of the unifying values that we would all accept is that human health is a right. Um, and that in order to deliver that human health, we do need health systems to do it of one sort or another. But from there on, it sort of breaks down, and we've ended up with huge disparities in the way healthcare is delivered, in part geographically around the world, largely with wealth of countries being gated to the success of uh, delivery of healthcare, but not always. Uh, and secondly, uh, there have been a wide range of mechanisms developed even in the high-income countries for delivering health care. There's always great controversy about whether this system is better than that system, what are they doing, how do they deliver it, and importantly, how much do they cost. I found it so powerful hearing Sir John Bell talk about human health as a right. There are a few other key things that Sir John Bell mentioned here. He talked about healthcare disparities between lower middle income countries and high income countries, about the different systems that have been developed to deliver healthcare, and about the affordability of these different healthcare systems. I want to start by thinking about the different healthcare systems that currently exist and the affordability of these different systems, especially going forward. It struck me that maybe health systems are only surviving precisely because they don't cater to everyone. And so I wanted to know what this would mean for the possibility of achieving affordable universal health coverage in the future. So currently about half the world's population lack access um, to universal health coverage. Dr Ed Fitzgerald, Global Healthcare Executive to KPMG's Global Chairman of Healthcare, Government and Infrastructure. Um, and I think the second important point is that complete universal health coverage of all healthcare services and treatments um, would be unaffordable for most countries. And so you have a situation whereby you need to provide access to a, a, at least a, a basic level of care, and, and that's what countries have signed up to as part of the 2030 Sustainable Development Goals. Um, and you can then start getting into, well, what is that level of care that's provided? The, the other point to that is ensuring that what care is provided um, is done so um, Potentially, for some countries, may choose free at the point of delivery. For other countries, there may be some degree of co-payment that's involved in this. But either way, it's essential that the healthcare services are not impoverishing um, for those who are receiving them. I asked Dr Fitzgerald what sorts of healthcare models exist and how these might be changing in the future. Traditionally, if you look back at healthcare, we consider two main models for, for health system delivery of universal health coverage, um, the, the Bismarck and the Beveridge model. Um, the Beveridge model is really um, the National Health Service in the United Kingdom. It's a taxpayer funded system which is largely uh, free at the point of delivery. The Bismarck system um, brings together some general taxation but also importantly um, social insurance. Now, those models have, um, have stood the test of time, but actually if you look at them carefully and you look at what countries need in the future to deliver universal health coverage, it's, it's really going to be a hybrid of these for, for several reasons. Um, one is that for many countries, um, trying to achieve in, what, 11 years now, a move towards universal health coverage is um, 
potentially unaffordable. Um, a taxation-based system is very difficult to deliver in countries that can't actually deliver that much taxation or afford that much taxation. But also, the being pragmatic, the, the scale and pace of change that's required to deliver that in the time available, um, the NHS has had 70 years to get to the point that it's at now. Um, so I think... Um, when you start thinking about how countries are going to afford and deliver this, this hybrid model is going to become increasingly important. Um, and I'm thinking particularly of countries like India, where their new national health insurance plan is um, very, very deliberately going out to seek capacity from the private sector to try and enhance delivery of that, because then they are there is a very large sector that's already delivering healthcare that the government needs to engage with. And without that, it's going to be difficult to meet um, the goals that they're, that they're trying to deliver. So it sounds like hybrid healthcare models are spelling out the future of affordable universal health coverage and that we are at a crossroads when thinking about the future of providing affordable healthcare. Dr. Tarani Loganathan, an Atlantic Fellow for Equity in Southeast Asia, talks about the specific example of Malaysia. Malaysia is a country that has universal health coverage but is at a crossroads in terms of how to fund healthcare in the future. Okay, so our system is very like the UK system of NHS, where we actually have a beverage model healthcare system. Um, our funding financing is from government revenues, tax and government revenues. So um, that is our public healthcare system. But unfortunately, Malaysia has a mixed public-private healthcare system. Okay, So we also have a burgeoning, quite strong private healthcare system, and 50% of them our healthcare expenses is actually in the private sector. And uh, when you talk about our total health expenditure, 50% is private. Okay, mm-hmm. And our total health expenditure is only 4.5% of our GDP. Okay, yeah. yeah. So what is happening right now is um, the public healthcare uh, is underfunded. Okay, we we have a lot of competition from the private healthcare, so that drains our resources in terms of manpower. Um, we we do need to improve a lot of things, but the funding does not help us. So yes, we are at the crossroads in in terms of how we we're going to finance because um, the economic situation in the country and actually in the region is is not exactly. Um, it does not actually allow for um, healthcare. Yeah, know? yeah. yeah. Um, and so we've heard a bit about different types of healthcare systems and the affordability of these systems going forward. The second thing that we heard Sir John Bell point out in his welcome address was the healthcare disparities between low and middle income countries and high income countries. Dr. Loganathan was contributing to a panel this weekend about improving inequities in low- and middle-income countries. I asked her if she thinks there's enough attention being paid to the healthcare disparities between low- and middle-income countries and high-income countries. Actually, I would say no, not enough. Uh, right now, the, the focus of most healthcare systems in low- and middle-income countries is to get universal health coverage. That should be the primary concern because um, universal health coverage talks about the majority and um, health care for all. But in countries like Malaysia, where um, we actually have universal health care coverage, we have a strong public health care system that 
that provides healthcare services to most, to all Malaysians, we we actually look have to look further, okay? Because uh, there are inequities it, that need to be uncovered and addressed. Because when we look at average figures and of national success, we miss the problems that lie at the margin. Something Dr. Loganathan points out here is that in striving to produce universal health coverage, some groups can get left behind. For those countries like Malaysia that have achieved universal health coverage, there are still inequalities within those systems that can get forgotten about or glossed over. Dr. Loganathan says that this isn't right, that we have to look further. Question two. What does successful universal health coverage look like? As the World Health Organization says, universal health coverage means providing access to healthcare for everyone and that this healthcare has to be affordable. So to declare successful universal health coverage, a healthcare system has to do both these things. We just heard Dr. Loganathan talking about Malaysia as a country that has achieved universal health coverage. But she also points towards the inequalities within that system. I was a bit confused then as to how Malaysia could declare universal health coverage with these inequalities, as surely that meant the healthcare system wasn't serving everyone. Okay, let me explain a bit about Malaysia. So Malaysia is uh, a country in Southeast Asia, and uh, we achieved independence in 1957 from Britain. And uh, we built up our healthcare system uh, on the basis of um, UHC from uh, the ideas of Alma Atta and primary care. So it really is a health system. The public health system really focuses on rural health care and has built up the system based on that. So we have primary health clinics, we have district hospitals, then state hospitals and uh, tertiary hospitals in the, in the big cities. So it, we, we have achieved great miles. So uh, coverage in terms of access goes down to uh, small villages in rural areas and uh, big cities. Uh, healthcare costs are very minimal to uh, citizens. Uh, our cit- citizens uh, pay almost uh, very little money for, health, for high quality health services. Okay? Um, and as a testament to this, our success rates are visible in our numbers. So life expectancy in Malaysia is uh, 77 for women and 73 for uh, for males. We have very low infant mortality, very low maternal mortality. So we could congratulate ourselves because we have achieved universal health coverage. But what we need to do is actually look beyond those figures and look into the differences that arise uh, when we desegregate and examine according to um, different classes like income, geographic location, gender, um, uh, citizens, non-citizens, and so on. I asked Dr. Loganathan if she can give an example of these inequalities, such as the difference in treatment between citizens and non-citizens. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, I did a qualitative study on um, migrants in Malaysia, and what I found was um, in Malaysia, um, there are a lot of barriers. First of all, the main barrier is financial barriers. Um, um, uh, migrant workers are uh, 
subjected, actually all foreign nationals in public healthcare system, the, the, the prices for foreigners are actually much higher than locals. And when you think about migrant workers, they are minimum wage earners. So they earn like 1,000 ringgit a month. That's the minimum rate. Uh, yeah. So if you go to a hospital, uh, it costs a lot of money. Insurance is given, I mean, but the coverage for that insurance is actually very little. The services that's offered is very little. They are not covered for um, outpatient care. Um, and um, the law and the system expects uh, employers to provide, provide, but in the, actually there's, there's no legal requirement. The other issue is um, also documentation. So um, migrant workers are supposed to provide, uh, provide your passports and work permits whenever they seek care. In fact, whenever they walk out of their house or workplace. And this is a big barrier because uh, a lot of them are undocumented or they don't hold their passports. So they can't seek care. So uh, there are a lot of issues in terms of um, uh, language, competence, cultural competency and... Uh, other sorts of things as well, but um, it is quite worrying in Malaysia because uh, uh, I I would see this as uh, exclusion, uh, a my um, in our UHC, so UHC and uh, the idea of universal health coverage would cover everybody in the country, and um, we are actually excluding a segment of society. What Dr. Loganathan made me realise was that achieving universal health coverage is a huge challenge, but once it's achieved, that's not the end. We always have to look further to make sure it is really and truly serving everyone. And this is the case all over the world, in both developed and developing countries. What Dr. Loganathan also talks about here is the cost of healthcare in Malaysia, and how differences in costs for different people creates inequality, I asked Dr. Fitzgerald what examples there are of healthcare systems that are both effective and affordable. Um, two stand out for me in particular where I've spent time recently. Um, I think the, the healthcare system in Singapore is particularly renowned as being one of the, the most efficient and achieving some of the best outcomes in healthcare for its population with one of the lowest spends in GDP terms. Um, they are essentially a city-state but they've had very long-term prioritisation of healthcare and they've been able to deliver against that plan. Um, there's a number of other factors that have helped that they have a consolidation of a hospital-led system into health sectors. They have joined up electronic healthcare records across the system. They are a very technologically advanced healthcare system. But there's a number of points in that that can be pulled out and um, held up and replicated by other healthcare providers around the world. The other healthcare system that's particularly stood out for me as well um, is the Israeli health system. Um, there are examples within there for healthcare maintenance organisations of some of the best integrated care systems that I've seen in, in my travels around the world. It's so great to hear about success stories here at the Forum. While often those success stories come with caveats, it's inspiring to hear them all the same, to know that universal health coverage is possible. Question three, how do we achieve universal health coverage? We've heard from Dr. Loganathan already about Malaysia's healthcare journey, which is a middle-income country with, on the whole, a healthcare success story. There is another success story being told here at the Forum this weekend, 
this time about a low-income country. Dr. Anya Spinawaha is here at the forum speaking about Rwanda. Returning to Rwanda two years after the genocide, Dr. Benawaho had a leading role in helping to rebuild a thriving healthcare system there. She told us that Rwanda's health outcomes in some areas, such as in their HIV program, are better than in some high-income countries. I caught up with a couple of the delegates after Dr. Benawaho's talk. So what are your reflections on Dr. Benawaho's talk? Well, I thought it was fascinating that a majority of her work has focused on improving data collection to be robust, to be strong, reliable, and that that has fed into building a system of healthcare workers, um, where 80% of the burden is on community healthcare workers, um, that then translates up into the upper levels, the district, the provincial, finally up to physicians. And that, that system in itself, data collection and improving the healthcare workforce, has translated into such dramatic improvements in mortality rate, in um, engagement of, of patients, and, and I'm curious of where they're going to go in the next decade. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, talking about the workforce, the importance of making sure that people are held accountable to their work so that there's specific things in place and procedures in place where people are being measured and that, like you said, data proper data is being collected to see if something's effective or not. Because I think a lot of the time people implement services that we don't necessarily know whether or not they're effective and she seems to have done an incredible job of like promoting and also implementing services that have then been very stringently monitored and checked if they were effective or not. Listening to Rwanda's and Malaysia's successes, it made me start thinking about whether high-income countries look to low- and middle-income countries enough for tips on good healthcare practice. Dr Ed Fitzgerald. I absolutely agree. There is um, this huge benefit to looking at particularly what we call frugal healthcare um, innovation in low-income countries. Uh, there are many ways of delivering services and care that, that high-income countries can learn from in these settings. And it's very much a two-way process. Um, interestingly, uh, we're increasingly seeing uh, lower-income countries learning from high-income countries, but learning from mistakes that we've made in how they then take forward and roll out new healthcare systems and, and implementations of those. Yeah, because the other thing that I've sort of heard is that there are some countries that spend a lot less on, on healthcare um, but actually have the same outcomes or sort of better outcomes than, than other countries who are spending more. Um, and this is part of that sort of frugal sort of approach, is it? It is. Um, and it's also particularly in relation to the, um, the way that the healthcare system has been established. So um, the classic example of a country uh, spending by far and away the most of any nation on healthcare is the United States. Um, they have a very fragmented system whereby... Um, payers and providers are not well aligned, uh, there is little in the way of um, uh, negotiation or incentive to drive prices down and that means um, that un unfortunately prices are uh, particularly escalated. You compare that with the National Health Service where there is one single overarching public funded system, it puts it in a very strong negotiating position nationally to ensure that it gets the best value for, for both patients and for taxpayers and that helps uh, limit, the, limit the costs. It seems predictable, but all the same disappointing, that flows of knowledge in the healthcare world have traditionally moved from the developed world to the developing world, although it is encouraging to hear this is changing. As Dr Ed Fitzgerald says, developed countries have a lot to learn from developing countries too, and there should be more sharing in both directions. 
sharing about successes but also failures to create thriving healthcare systems faster and to prevent the same mistakes being made. So how can we make sure countries are sharing more? What sorts of forums are already there to facilitate this sharing? And if they're not already there, what should they look like? Well, I think that's a good question. Um, if you look at the current um, uh, multilateral, multinational organisations that exist in healthcare at the moment, they're quite often focused around um, particular areas, not um, clinical diseases, non-infectious diseases, very much at the uh, uh, treatment um, focused end. And I think there, there is a, an increasingly growing emphasis through the WHO to focus on healthcare systems and uh, the move towards universal health coverage as part of that. But again, that perhaps doesn't focus in on some of the day-to-day -day issues of how you actually operationalise that and what good practice in that area looks like. And so I think there is a need for, for greater sharing um, between the actual operational side of healthcare systems themselves. And I think there's opportunities for countries to um, form greater links between each other to um, look at what they're doing and see how they can adopt best practice. Thinking about platforms for sharing made me think that the very forum we were all attending was one such platform. It's platforms like these, it seems, that are so necessary if we're going to achieve universal health coverage. As a lot of us here are students, and many of the speakers are working in academia or have worked in academia previously, it got me thinking about what academia's role is in the sharing process. Right, I, I think in academia you have a bit more power and freedom. I mean, yes, uh, it is a bit more limited, but there is a bit more where you can actually tackle and look at issues that um, you can't in government. Sometimes in government, uh, you, you basically have to follow the, the, the government line because you're part of a system, right? So you have to follow your boss and the boss of above. So you can't speak out of line or you can't uh, think out of the box. But in academia, you have that freedom. And with that freedom, you should have the responsibility. So I think it's a it's an incredibly multifaceted role, uh, and and likely underappreciated. Um, and I think part of the reason for that is that um, it, actually implementing universal health coverage and implementing change in healthcare is is very hands on. And I think there is always the the risk that great work around this area in academia um, remains a great piece of work and isn't actually put into active practice. And I think um, the future has to be around addressing that interface and ensuring that the really good work that's being done in that area sees the light of day and achieves practical implementation to actually affect change. Um, in terms of what the actual contribution is, I think it spans the whole spectrum of healthcare, right from understanding what cost-effective and good value innovation is, through to understanding the, the requirements and the demands and the challenges faced by the workforce in the, in the workforce crisis that we're experiencing globally at the moment in healthcare, right through to conceptualising those mod ideal models of um, governance and the frameworks around those. So I think the, the role is deep and, and broad. The challenge is making sure that that gets through to actually change practice. As the series goes on, I'll be continuing to ask speakers what academia's role is in promoting universal health coverage and how the discoveries made in academic circles can get out onto the ground and make a real difference. I can say at this point already though that there is a genuine concern here at the forum to understand academia's place in healthcare reform, to understand the ways in which academia can contribute but also to understand academia's limitations, knowing when to say, okay, we really need to collaborate 
to reach outside of academic circles to make sure our voices get heard. Especially considering today's world doesn't value experts in the same way anymore. Sir Jeremy Farrer, who was giving a talk on academia's role in promoting health for all, mentions just this problem. And then the challenges that we face, and, and, and you will face, that my generation has, has nicely given to you, um, there is a coming of a challenge to the complacency of the academic community that as long as we provided evidence, the world would thank us, uh, honour us, and do it. And that is increasingly challenged. So the anti-vaccine movement is a very good example of that. Uh, it's, it's not all pervasive, but it's almost becoming all pervasive, and it's focused around vaccines. But I, but I don't think any of us should think it's going to stay at vaccines. There will be challenges to, to knowledge. Uh, in the wonderful Brexit debate in this country, there was a question of who needs experts. Um, it is happening around the world as people have greater access to a greater variety of news. And I think, on the whole, the academic community has not uh, realised quite soon enough that their authority, for want of a better word, the trust that society has in them, is going to be challenged more than it has in the past. And I think we have to wake up to that. Trust. Trust seems like such a simple thing, but creating and nurturing it is incredibly challenging. Although I didn't know it at this point in the weekend, trust was going to turn out to be one of the most important underlying issues across many of the different debates being had here at the Forum. More on that, though, in the course of the next three episodes. Question four. Why do we want to achieve universal health coverage in the first place? There is a moral and ethical case for universal healthcare. As John said, increasingly now around the world, healthcare is seen as a human right. By the way, that's not yet universally accepted, but increasingly, of course, it is seen as something which is good for people. The work that I've been doing over the last 10 years as Global Chairman for Healthcare and KPMG is proving not only the moral and ethical case, that was Dr Mark Britnell, KPMG's Global Chairman of Healthcare, Government and Infrastructure, speaking not just about the moral and ethical case for healthcare coverage, but also about the economic case for healthcare coverage. I realised that, up until this point, I hadn't even asked myself why we are striving to achieve universal health coverage, probably because there seemed to be such clear moral and ethical reasons for it. As we heard Sir John Bell say in his welcome address, human health is a right. I caught up with one of the delegates here at the forum about Dr Britnell's talk and the economic case for universal health coverage. Uh, my name is Rob Ruchot. I am a PhD student in the Nuffield Department of Medicine. Uh, and uh, reflecting on the talk from this morning with uh, Mark Britnell talking about sort of the role of the private sector in universal healthcare, I thought it was very interesting one of the questions that was asked um, which was about the economic case for universal healthcare and the economic case for extending extending lives. Um, and what was brought up is that economics can always be argued in different ways. And so he argues that there's a positive economic impact. It's probably just as easy to argue that it actually there isn't necessarily a huge economic incentive to invest in these things. Um, and I think that raises an interesting moral quandary about is this something we should be doing regardless of economics because uh, there's a moral imperative to invest in universal healthcare, there's, uh, there's a moral obligation to provide healthcare for everyone, um, and that if 
using an economic incentive to convince people that this is the right thing to do, if that's corrupting in some ways. From listening to Dr. Britnell's talk and from the other conversations I had with speakers and delegates at the forum, it didn't seem like anyone here was doubtful about the moral and ethical underpinnings to providing universal health coverage. But the interesting point that Dr. Britnell raises is that the moral and ethical reasons for striving to achieve universal health coverage might not convince everyone, and that in those instances where it's not enough to convince people, there might be an economic justification for universal health coverage too. Conclusion and further thoughts. The, the other thing about the subject today, which I think is really intriguing, is it's not all about doctors. It's about healthcare. And healthcare, as you know, involves many aspects of society. In fact, some of the great gains in healthcare that we've seen in the past 30 years have come from things which haven't been purely medical. Um, and, and they drive up a set of new challenges to delivering health to everyone in society, which I think are going to prove to be at least as challenging as those we've encountered in the last 50 years. So if, if you accept the, I think, the widely recognized observation that if you take everyone born from today, uh, about 50% of them will live to be 100, the really dramatic shifts in demography and the challenges produced by an aging population are bringing stresses on all healthcare systems, which I think make them all unsustainable over time. And so although we've got a model that kind of works that Something I haven't explicitly said in this first episode is how the world is changing. As Sir John Bell says, we have an ageing population and healthcare systems are going to have to adapt to that. A lot of what we've been talking about today though is a balance between looking to the future and looking at what's happening on the ground today. We heard from Dr Fitzgerald about the future financing health coverage and how it seems we have to be thinking more about hybrid models as time goes on. And we also heard from Dr Loganathan about inequalities between healthcare systems and inequalities that exist within healthcare systems, which need to be addressed today and not tomorrow. So it would be easy for me to go into biomedical research. There's more money, there's more glamour. <laughs> but but uh, this, the, the sort of work that I want to do is not glamorous. It, it does not give a lot of prestige because... Um, uh, people in my country want to look at after the citizens, right? Yeah, but I feel that there is a certain responsibility that you have in uh, in uh, well, academia or public service that that to shed um, light to all the people who cannot be seen have who are voiceless. As Dr. Loganathan says, striving for universal health coverage is not glamorous. It's not the easy road and often it doesn't bring prestige. But ultimately, it's about helping people, and that's what everyone here at the Forum is driven to do. Join me in the next three episodes of this four-part series covering the Rhodes Healthcare Forum, where you'll be listening in on my conversations with more of the speakers here this weekend. In the next three episodes, we'll be tackling three important issues that we need to think about in the context of universal health coverage mental health care, equal and inclusive health care, and finally, 
transformative tools and patient therapies. listening to today's podcast brought to you by the Rhodes Trust. Special thanks goes to all of today's interviewees, the Rhodes Healthcare Forum Committee, the Rhodes Communications Team and Kira Allman. This podcast was produced by myself, Christy Calloway-Gale, and the music you heard was Hopeful Journey by Scott Holmes, provided by freemusicarchive.org.